the America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean believes the more time you spend outside together, the better. That's why they design products that make it easier to take longer walks, have deeper talks, and never worry about the weather. Discover clothing, outerwear, footwear, and gear made for every type of adventure that the outside built right in. Because on the inside, we're all outsiders. Be an outsider with L.L. Bean. Climate change. It's become such a highly politicized phrase lately, and it's been boiled down to memes and gifs and sound bites to help win arguments or more often get likes from people who agree with you. Our climate is certainly changing, and humans certainly are a major cause of it, but climate change is way more complicated than it seems. That's why we leave it to scientists to tell us what's up. Not politicians, not activists, people who study and report the facts. There's so much that we all get wrong about climate change, and the more we understand it, the better we can attempt to address it and make the tough decisions needed to save the many species and ecosystems that suffer from it. I'm Jason Epperson, and today on America's National Parks, we travel to California's Sequoia and Kings Canyon, where 30 years of research shows us how the world is changing and helps us figure out what to expect next. We begin with how climate data is actually collected and how the biggest challenges for parks like Sequoia and Kings Canyon are water and fire management. We've been monitoring weather here for decades and something we've noticed is that it has indeed been getting warmer. It's now one or two degrees Fahrenheit warmer than it was say in the mid 1970s. Nate Stevenson, research ecologist United States Geological Survey. The weight of the science currently says it will continue to get warmer. In fact, that rate of warming is gonna ramp up. It's gonna get a lot warmer a lot faster. We're facing that fact and taking it as a given, which means we have to focus on adaptation. How are we going to respond to that warming? William Tweed, Park Naturalist Emeritus, Sequoia and Kings Canyon. You can't understand a process like climate change without being able to document change. You can't document change without having baseline data from a natural world. National parks do that beautifully. Today we're here in one of the longest running annual resolution forest monitoring plots on Earth. I helped establish this plot about 30 years ago. At the time, we had no idea the kind of information we would get out of this that is related to climate change. We set up this plot where we just follow the fate of every single tree every single year as a way of better understanding what makes a forest work. Every single tree in the plot has a tag attached to it. It has a number, it's mapped. So it was maybe five years ago or so we were analyzing some of the data from these long-term plots so we noticed that the death rates of the trees had about doubled over the last couple of decades. But at the same time, there was no change in the birth rates of trees. So what that means is very slowly through time, the forest is getting thinner. If we hadn't been doing this monitoring, we never would have known that. The prime suspect for us was the warming climate. 
If you look at the forest behind me here, you can't just look at it and say, it's changing. It's changing because of climate change. That's not obvious just looking at the forest. We had to do that 30 years of monitoring. Here in this Mediterranean climate, we start off naturally with thousands of years of extreme variability. To separate out a change from a naturally variable pattern is a tricky business, and it takes time. So these parks have already been experiencing some undesirable changes that have been caused by humans. Among those have been air pollution. That's a pretty big issue here. Habitat fragmentation, which means animals require a large area to roam, have less area to roam as there's encroachment on park boundaries. Invasive species. Humans have been moving plants and animals around the globe. Those have been a problem here. And altered fire regimes. In this case, mostly fire exclusion. We've kept fire out of a system that depends on fire. I call the 800-pound gorilla climatic change. That's the new one that humans are throwing at this ecosystem. Its climate is just at the basis of these ecosystems. It's, it's the root cause of where things are on the landscape. And as that changes, these ecosystems are going to change, whether we like it or not. And so the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we adapt to that change that's coming our way? We're facing what we think will be unprecedented challenges and uncertain conditions for the future. Corin Nidick is the former ecologist and science coordinator at Sequoia and Kings Canyon. She's now at Rocky Mountain National Park. We know that there will be some degree of warming. All the modeling projections uh, predict this. But in terms of the amount of precipitation, that's highly uncertain. The elevation we're at here is about six or 7,000 feet. And at this elevation, maybe about half of the annual precipitation comes as snow. The rest comes as rain in the winter. The most important part of that precipitation is the snow part because that's the water bank that's gonna last into the summer and keep the soil charged with water as that snow slowly melts. And that's what allows the seedlings to survive of giant sequoias and other tree species. We know the fire season is longer. The ground dries out earlier and stays dry longer. And as a result, at the heart of the fire season, there's a more intense dryness, a more intense flammability than we believe we had on an average historically decades or more than decades ago. Deb Schweitzer is the former fire education specialist at the parks. She's now a public affairs officer for the U.S. Forest Service. Wildfire across America and West is changing, and that's likely linked to climate change. What we are seeing is longer fire seasons as our snowpack is melting sooner and fuels become more available to burn. We're seeing more destructive fire. We're seeing fires that are not good for the ecosystem and that are harder for us to put out and manage. I mean, I wonder if we'll have this same kind of issue. In terms of fire management, we're trying to restore the natural fire regime. Looking into the future, we don't know what the fire regime will be. The parks have been doing things to increase the resilience of these ecosystems. The most important of those is prescribed fire. Giant sequoia groves in the past depended on fires for sequoia regeneration and for keeping the fuel loads low and for keeping the, the forest thinner. And those are all things that enhance resilience of forests. 
what we're trying to do is to get the natural fire regime back. And this area here is a great example of returning the natural fire cycle to the forest and to the sequoias. This area, since we've started prescribed fires in the 1960s, has seen four prescribed fires. That's very close to the natural fire cycle of about every 10 to 15 years for this forest type. What that does is provide a lot of natural conditions for sequoias to thrive. It's a sunny open forest. The competition from other trees is reduced for food and water. And the fire creates these wonderful conditions for the sequoias to germinate. These trees, this ecosystem, is dependent on the new growth and the new sequoias and a forest that's functioning well. So what I hope for the future is that we've done enough work here to create a natural forest with mature sequoias, the younger sequoias, and then indeed the seedlings that will hopefully have enough resilience to make it into the future. Here in the Sierra Nevada, we don't know whether it's going to get warmer and wetter or warmer and drier, and those are two wildly different futures, and we would have very different management approaches to those if we knew for certain which one was coming. But we don't know. So we have to adapt a whole new way of thinking about managing and planning, and one of those is scenario planning. We focus on planning for not knowing what the future holds. We look at a whole array of possible futures and try to decide on a management approach that will fit any of those possible futures. Since scenario planning is really a qualitative procedure, here in the parks we need to make it applicable to on-the-ground planning. And the way that we've done that is we combine it with tools like our natural resource condition assessment, which gives us spatial information of the condition today of the resources. We also combine it with a vulnerability assessment that tells us about spatially how the resources might be affected by exposure and their sensitivity and their adaptive capacity to respond to future stressors. We need to be prepared and think ahead about what fire might be like 50 years, 100 years down the line. Will we see more lightning and therefore more fire? Will our fuel types change because uh, it's too dry to sustain what we have right here, right now? And how will that affect our human communities and our ecosystems so we're trying to figure out how to manage ahead to the future, and we're looking at a whole range of possibilities out there to try to find the right answer. I think we can respond to climatic change, and I think we can do good things that will help some of the most important values in the national park system be sustainable into the future. We have to come to grip with a world where change is inevitable and must be faced and must be shared with the public. As climate change creates new temperature and precipitation patterns, the ranges that some species occupy, particularly in mountainous areas like the Sierra Nevada, are also changing. Scientists like Steve Bessinger at the University of California, Berkeley, have been resurveying birds and mammals at sites in California that were first surveyed nearly 100 years ago by Joseph Grinnell. October 5th, 1933 left Berkeley, Mrs. G and I, quote, on vacation with camp outfit in the Ford. That must have been his Model T. At 10 a.m., hottest October day on record. Newspapers say 92 in San Francisco, 102 in the orchards at Fresno. 
We saw it 88 in the cool of the bamboo-thatched watermelon booth near Sears. Saw a mockingbird with the western environs. The Grinnell Resurvey Project is named after Joseph Grinnell, who was the first director of the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology on campus. And he was very interested in the distribution of animals and what factors affected their distributions. So he particularly developed the ideas about how climate might shape where species are found. Nate Stevenson again. Here in Sierra Nevada, what makes these national parks special is their incredible elevational gradient. Um, Sequoia Kings Canyon National Park has a gradient of over 13,000 feet elevation in it. And climatically, that's the equivalent of going from Southern California to Northern Alaska. So we have all these different climates packed together in a small space and all these different organisms that require real specific climatic conditions in their special little zones there. Grinnell made a trip from the Central Valley up over the Sierras through Yosemite National Park and the surrounding area and over to the east side of the Sierras. And he was looking at the change in animal life as he went up in elevation. And that change gave him kind of a proxy for how climate affected where species are found. And of course, Grinnell wrote that he thought the value of his collection would be perhaps known in 100 years, assuming the material is safely collected and stored. So we decided to start retracing where Grinnell went. And we began with his famous Yosemite transect, then Lassen National Park to the north, and then Kings Canyon Sequoia National Park to the south. And our goal was to see whether um, the small mammals and the birds that he recorded so diligently in his field notebooks have moved upslope in elevation. That's what we would expect with warming, that species would move their elevational range up as the climate got warmer and became more suitable for them further up the mountain and perhaps became unsuitable at the bottom of the mountain. But the climate change across these areas was very different. And as a result, we also saw some large differences for the species across these areas. Some species consistently showed the same change in elevation. Uh, the range retractions, for example, of the alpine chipmunk, which are, turned out to be very severe, were similar throughout its range. But others were moving upslope in some places and downslope in others or didn't change when it changed in Yosemite and Kings Canyon, but not in Lassen. And funny things happen. Species interact with other species. And those species interactions through competition and predation can sometimes limit the range of species. So some of the changes that we've seen through the Grinnell Resurvey may well be reflecting changes in species interactions. Maybe the climate didn't favor one, and that species declined, and another one took its place, maybe even moving down to take its place. So we began to realize that climate change was a lot more complicated than some of the simple expectations that everything will get heated off of mountains. Sharice Sidoriak, Chief of the Division of Resources Management and Science at the National Park Service. One of the purposes of the national parks is to protect biodiversity. And biodiversity is made up of species, species composition, 
how they're arranged structurally, and how they function relative to biophysical processes. So when we're looking at options for the future, it seems to me that one of the things we're going to have to do is make sure that that component, that balance between composition, structure, and function, that relationship is better understood. And that's really something that science can help us with. It will help us decide which species will potentially thrive in the future and which we simply have to accept are goners. If you're a superintendent or another decision maker, you need two classes of information. You need values and you need facts. And without either of those, you're sort of in a bind. The values tell you where you want to go. The facts tell you whether you're getting there or not. So science's role is to give you those facts. Science does not give you the values. Those come from policy and law. Science is telling us that change is occurring. But my big question is, so what? Why does that matter? And I'd like to be able to have conversations with the public, other employees, peer groups, about that question. I think it's the key question right now. And what it, what it really comes down to is what we care the most about. When we really care about something, we'll make an effort to conserve it. But what happens when you get into a changing climate is that there's gonna be winners and losers. And as a society, some winners are gonna be really great for us. And some of the losses are gonna be so distressing, so depressing that it will be hard to come to terms with. And it's this conversation that I think is more important right now than just looking at the science. It's using the science to paint a picture of what the possible futures can hold. I think one of the messages um, that's probably important to understand is that the climate is changing, but it's also changing in somewhat unpredictable ways. The parks are really going to be important areas for future refugia in climate change, and that they can connect to other kinds of habitats elevationally or uh, through a north-south kinds of connections. I think they're going to be very important to be able to allow plants and animals to move in response to this changing climate. So having tools like that that marry science and our view of the world doesn't tell us what the future will hold, but it gives us an opportunity to prepare for novel futures. And those novel futures, in many ways for me, are exciting. It's, it's when you, if we could get the public to be engaged in that conversation and see that excitement, the probability that we would see things that we've never seen before rather than be depressed that we're going to lose a species here or a system there. I think that's very powerful in helping people appreciate the parks. Today's episode was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, and the interviews were produced for videos by the National Park Service Climate Change Response Program. We'll link to the full videos where you can also see the credits and the show notes at nationalparkpodcast.com. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. 
you can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group, now over 65,000 members strong, to get your national park questions answered and see tons of amazing photos and videos. For more great American destinations, listen to the Sea America podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.